You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Well, it's such a pleasure to introduce my old friend Jeff Kahn, uh, who is a, uh, what is your title, a university distinguished professor at uh, Southern Methodist University at the law school there. Uh, he did his PhD at Oxford and then did his law degree at Yale, is that right? Michigan. No, Michigan, that's right, Michigan. He did it under Yale, Yale. Yeah. Midwest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And where you're from, I think, Michigan, yeah. Uh, so Jeff is kind of a schizophrenic guy in terms of his uh, uh, research. He does a huge amount of research on these kinds of topics dealing with Russia, uh, especially some of his issues related to the Council of Europe, but also has published widely on issues of criminal law in Russia, and then has a whole other life uh, where he does national security law uh, related to the United States, and has this wonderful book, uh, what is it, Mrs. Shipley's Ghost. Uh, the right to travel and, terror, and terrorist watch list, which is a kind of scary one. You know, you didn't realize there was this one woman that was controlling so much in terms of people getting passports for many, many years. Um, and uh, has published in uh, many, many different journals on all of these things. Uh, and we're so delighted to have him here to talk about this incredibly topical issue of the relationship or the lack of relationship at this point between Russia and the Council of Europe. So, another schizophrenic relationship. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very glad to be here, uh, so I'll get my notes in order. Uh, and I also want to thank not only Kathy uh, for the kind introduction and for the invitation, but also Jennifer Tischler and Courtney Johnson and Ahmed Abdullahi, all of whom uh, went to great lengths to make sure that uh, if there are mistakes or problems today, they're entirely my fault, uh, but not theirs. They did a great job. So. Um, let me also uh, make one shameless plug. Um, <clears throat> uh, uh, there's a call for abstracts for a conference uh, that I'm involved in, uh, jointly being held by uh, my law school, University of Oslo, and a Center for Excellence in the Law Faculty at the University of Oslo, uh, to be held this spring, maybe your spring break in Oslo, uh, on a theme closely related to the topic I want to talk about today authoritarian states and human rights institutions, Russia and the Council of Europe, where Russia may very well be the case study, but a case study with implications for many other parts of the world and many other international organizations. So I encourage you to go to the website or to contact me, uh, and I can send you to the website, look at the call for abstracts, and if it's something that is of interest in your uh, research area or uh, area of someone you know, I hope you'll pass uh, the news along. So when lawyers make decisions, they habitually make the law seem clear-cut and completely determinative of the outcome. This is especially true of judges and especially, especially true of the U.S. judiciary, which has this habit of making it seem like there is this one true legal answer out there for any sort of problem, just waiting to be plucked out of the heavens uh, by a wise judiciary. Opinions are sprinkled with words like clearly and obviously and certainly and cliches like it's beyond cavil that. Uh, and while law can be clear cut and black and white, it's not always so. Law doesn't always give a clear answer and it's reductionist at best, I think, 
uh, to think that it always can or must. On the other extreme, some people say that law is simply irrelevant to decision-making when the decisions are really, really important. This is a refrain you sometimes hear in international legal circles. When the chips are down and the decision is of real consequence, the lawyers don't have a seat at the decision-making table because their input just isn't needed to determine what the answer ought to be. Raw political or even military power is what determines the answer. So the paper I'm presenting to you today rejects both approaches to thinking, and they're a little bit caricatured to make the point, uh, but rejects both approaches to thinking about law. There is a more nuanced approach to understanding how law may be used and be useful. And in some contexts, even international contexts, law really matters even if it's not outcome determinative. There are other ways that law matters besides helping you to derive the right answer. So my case study is about how law influenced the process that culminated in the decision made in 1996 to admit Russia into the Council of Europe uh, as that international organization's 39th member. And I'd like to start, oddly maybe, with two references to Finland, uh, which has more than weather in common uh, with Wisconsin. Uh, I almost deleted the slide after talking to several people in taxi cabs on the way here who have never heard of Ulu, Wisconsin, but uh, I, you know, I think you might want to go there when it warms up. Um, but perfectly uh, substantial Finnish presence in Wisconsin. So the first reason to mention this is, of course, that Finland has a very good reason to pay attention to Russia. I'm also beginning here in a talk about the origins of Russia's admission to the Council of Europe to emphasize a second contribution that I hope this paper can make. Understanding these origins is important to understanding Russia's expulsion from the Council of Europe this past March and the risks that Russia and its war of aggression against Ukraine present not only to its neighbors but to the international organizations that are working in the neighborhood. So the first reference is a relatively recent one. When Finland was about to begin its chairmanship of the Council of the Committee of Ministers in the Council of Europe in November of 2018, the Foreign Minister of Finland held a joint press conference with the Secretary General of the Council of Europe at the time, Thorburn Jagland, uh, there on your left, and uh, uh, the Foreign Minister Timo Soini uh, on the right. Uh, and uh, Soini chose as his first topic, quote, the question of Russian non-payment of membership fees and participation rights in the parliamentary assembly, which he diplomatically noted caused tensions and the situation is challenging. Soini gravely noted, quote, members leaving the Council of Europe would not be good for either the organizations nor for the protection of human rights in Europe, including Russia. Now, of course, Russia stopped paying its membership dues, which constituted a sizable portion of the total Council of Europe budget, when it was stripped of its voting rights in the organization's parliamentary assembly after, shortly after Russia occupied and annexed the Crimean Peninsula in 2014. And it took five years and apparently good old-fashioned Finnish diplomacy before Russia's voting rights were restored and it started paying its dues again. Secretary General Yagland, who left his position a few months after that Russian restoration, emphasized his trust in Finnish diplomacy for what he called a real danger that Europe is not only facing Brexit, one country leaving the European Union, but that at the same time we might also get Ruxit, <laughs> that Russia is leaving the European Convention on Human Rights. 
leaving the convention was a nice, ambiguous phrase. It could mean, and was probably intended to mean, Russia's saber-rattling about walking out. But it could have also meant defenestration, that Russia was going to be pushed out for any number of systemic and chronic violations of its obligations as a member state, not paying its dues, filling up the docket of the European court with systemic repeat violations. The list could go on and on and on. It was overdetermined that Russia was in violation of its requirements as a member of the Council of Europe. So part of my argument today is that this Ruxit, as Yagland called it, was foreseeable. It was a known risk, in fact, when Russia joined 26 years earlier. But the legal history of that period shows that the future risk was undervalued. This was especially so compared to what was considered at the time to be the high value that Russian membership could have as a vehicle for legal and political reform in an emerging post-Soviet Russian Federation. Not only that, but there was also more than a touch of self-interest in the Council of Europe decision-making to make Russia a member because it was colored by the fear that organization had that it was going to be eclipsed by what was soon to become the European Union. What was the point of a Council of Europe if you've got a European Union? When the fall of the Berlin Wall presented the Council of Europe with the unexpected opportunity to play a major role in the unification of the European continent, its leaders saw that opportunity and seized it. What they didn't see or preferred to obscure was the conflict that this opportunity exposed in the values held by this international organization. So that's part of the title, the values that this organization had. The Council of Europe's origins were based on, quote, shared values by, quote, like-minded peoples. But from the start, the organization also hoped to expand eastward into parts of Europe that did not necessarily have the same values or were driven by the same like-mindedness. So there was a, a conflict in the policy choices, a dissonance. The second Finnish reference point um, points to the danger to international organizations that admit members that don't share its values. Much of the world is forgotten, but certainly not the Finns, of the Soviet attack that began the Winter War in November of 1939. And just ask yourself if this reminds you of anything, just this quick summary of events. First, <laughs> the Soviets demanded that Finland cede some territory on its eastern side, ostensibly for security of Leningrad, but more likely about restoring the uh, Soviet Union's uh, preferred earlier imperial borders. When Finland refused, uh, this led to a Soviet invasion on the pretext of responding to an artillery attack uh, that was coming, uh, and, and the, uh, the Soviets said that they were coming to defend uh, the true regime, the true governing regime of Finland, the actual Finnish government being described as a vicious fascist clique. They were initially repulsed by an under-resourced but uh, extremely courageous contingent of the Finnish military. But in the end, Finland lost, and lost about 15% of its territory. So this not only reduced the size of Finland, but it produced a final substantive act by the League of Nations. The last substantive act that the League of Nations uh, undertook was to expel the Soviet Union as a member. And I just want to share some of the rhetoric and compare it to what we saw this past March when the Council of Europe expelled the Russian Federation. 
In the opinion of Soviet circles, we read in Pravda, well, we didn't read, but somebody read, in the opinion of Soviet circles, this absurd decision of the League of Nations calls forth an ironic smile and can only make a laughing stock of its ill-starred authors. The ruling circles of Britain and France have forfeited both the moral and the formal right to talk about anybody's aggression, the more so about aggression on the part of the USSR. Fast forward, EU and NATO member states, we read in Interfax, which are unfriendly towards Russia, are abusing their absolute majority in the Council of Europe Committee of Ministers and are continuing their course toward the destruction of the Council of Europe and the common humanitarian and legal space in Europe. Russia will take no part in the attempts of NATO and the EU, which obediently follows in its footsteps, to turn the oldest European organization, the Council of Europe, into another venue where mantras of Western supremacy and narcissism are chanted. Let them enjoy each other's company without Russia. Well, this is all to say there is danger not just to Ukraine, but to the international organizations and the international legal norms that rose from the rubble of the League of Nations and the aftermath of World War II. So this is a structure of the paper that I want to present to you in the next uh, 20 or 25 minutes or so. Um, first, I want to briefly discuss the Council of Europe's Eastern policy during the height of the Cold War. Um, this is not an expansion that was ill thought or at the last minute. Uh, I want to talk about a particular speech that Mikhail Gorbachev gave in 1989, July of 1989, uh, extolling the, uh, the common European home and the way the Council of Europe took an opportunity to misunderstand that speech and run with it. And then finally, I want to talk about how in pursuit of a policy, Eastern expansion, that wasn't really quite consonant in all ways with its values, uh, the rules began to be bent. And I want to do this, uh, and this is the theoretical part of the paper, uh, through a, con a, a sort of conceit. Uh, this is Abram Chase, who was the legal advisor at the State Department during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And he wrote this very elegant little book, which I'd strongly encourage you to read, uh, called International Crises and the Role of Law in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, and his argument uh, was uh, that law is not always about finding, uh, the, um, finding the legal answer. So the U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union at the time, uh, who was part of the executive committee that was working in the 14 days on the Cuban Missile Crisis, was reported to have said when he heard that there was going to be a, a legal presentation, well, we better have a good legal argument because the Soviets like legal arguments. But that wasn't what Abram Chase was all about. His point was, and he says this in a very nice interview he gave years later, I don't think when you think about how it affected the decision, it wasn't because we had a kind of technical brief for the Soviet Union. What we were doing was feeding into the arguments about policy on a substantive level, but as lawyers. And this is the argument, the theoretical argument, that I want to uh, sort of put on as a template uh, to what I see in the decision-making about Russia's joining the Council of Europe. So Russia, law didn't come up with the answer whether Russia could be admitted or not, but it did serve as a constraint on decision-making it served uh, to provide a series of justifications or legitimation standards for that action, uh, metrics by which the decision to admit Russia could be evaluated, 
uh, as in keeping with or not uh, uh, in keeping with the, with the legal constraints. And it provided organizational structures, procedures, and forums. It got lawyers involved at a certain stage of decision making, not because they were asked to solve a legal problem, but because they were to give insights to allow the policymakers uh, to do their job. And uh, that is now uh, what I'd like to turn to. So to begin, uh, the Council of Europe's Eastern policy uh, during the height of the Cold War. An important starting point is this policy, which was to expand uh, as fast as possible the Council of Europe from its original 10 members eastward across the European continent. Now, this was a, a, a wonderful and rather idealized wish at the time that it was conceived in 1950 uh, because the singular stumbling block to that goal was the Soviet Union. The wish was um, concretized uh, in a variety of ways. Uh, one of the first resolutions of the Parliamentary Assembly, uh, which is the legislative arm of the Council of Europe, was to create a special committee to ensure that the interests of, quote, certain nations which are precluded from participating in the work of the Council of Europe shall be considered in every proposal which may be formulated by the assembly or its committees. So from the very beginning, every decision that was made in the legislative arm of the Council of Europe had to go through a committee that would consider how it might affect uh, the ultimate goal of expansion eastward into countries euphemistically called um, certain nations precluded from participating. But those certain nations were the Soviet Union, the countries of the Soviet Union on the European uh, portion, and uh, the Warsaw Pact. The problem was that this policy um, stumbled up against core values of the Council of Europe uh, that are enshrined in its statute, um, where we read that the whole purpose of the Council of Europe is to reaffirm their devotion to the spiritual and moral values, which are the common heritage of their peoples and the true source of individual freedom. Uh, from the preamble to the, to, the, um, to the fundamental, most important convention uh, in the Council of Europe system, the uh, Human Rights Convention, that the reason these countries are coming together is because they are like-minded and have a common heritage of political traditions, ideals, freedom, and the, and the rule of law and they want to take the first steps towards uh, improving conditions uh, for human rights as found in the Universal Declaration. So if these are the values, there are also legal metrics embedded in these values because it tells us that uh, not only are the ideals and principles the rule of law, human rights, and fundamental freedoms, but Countries must be tested on whether they are collaborating sincerely and effectively in pursuing them. And Article 4 of the Statute of the Council of Europe uh, says that in order to become a member, a state must be deemed to be able and willing to fulfill the provisions of Article 3, that is, that they accept these principles and can be judged to be collaborating sincerely and effectively uh, in the achievement of them. So those are the standards of membership in which these values are embedded. 
And just to, to reemphasize a point, uh, in a rather oddly titled resolution early in the history of the Council of Europe, uh, you see that although on the one hand the Council is sincere in its goal of expanding eastward, it's also committed to the idea that that expansion has to be tested through Articles 1 and 3 and 4 of the statute. That we're not going to admit members just as fast as we can, although we want to expand, we also are going to require that these members satisfy the requirements of membership, legal requirements of membership. Well, there wasn't such a dissonance between eastward expansion and the values of the convention when there were only 10 members of the Council of Europe. When everybody either had a border on uh, the North Sea or North Atlantic or a border with a country that did. Between 1950 and 1989, though, the Council of Europe doubled in size. And from 1989 to 1998, it doubled again. And so this was now the expanse in which that policy goal, Eastern expansion, started to really clash with the values that were claimed to be integral to the organization. And now let me give you some concrete examples of how that actually uh, turned out to happen. So I think a very important uh, pivot point is this speech that Mikhail Gorbachev gave in July of 1989 uh, in Strasbourg at the Parliamentary Assembly. So the decision to invite him was made by the Assembly's Standing Committee in June of, 1990, of 1988. And the decision was strongly influenced by the person who's sitting behind Mikhail Gorbachev in this picture. That's Katrine Lumiere, who was the Secretary, of Gen Secretary General at the time that Gorbachev made the speech, but she was a member of the Parliamentary Assembly and the rapporteur for one of its most important committees at the time that the invitation was made. And she was influenced in wanting to make the invitation by the fact that the European community, the predecessor of the European Union, had already invited Gorbachev. And this feeling that the European community was getting such um, momentum, it was quickly building towards the Treaty of Maastricht in 1992, the idea of single monetary union, uh, a massive economic space, none of which was anything that the Council of Europe could provide. The Council of Europe was about promoting its values, democracy, human rights, uh, cultural, sporting, uh, other interactions to unite uh, the peoples of Europe, but not important stuff like the economy. So how was the Council of Europe going to, to make itself felt, to continue to be a relevant player? Uh, and as the... Um, the Gorbachev phenomenon is happening. The Lumiere, who was a close, who did a close study of Gorbachev, read his works, studied the activity he was engaged in with Perestroika and Glasnost, seized on the idea of, of inviting him and getting him to the council as fast as she could, uh, even if she could get her him faster than uh, the European community could. Gorbachev gave this speech in which he used the phrase, our common European home. Uh, but this metaphor obscured the fact that his ambition 
was cohabitation of separate social and political systems in a demilitarized European space, not the removal of those differences or the replacement of Soviet values with European ones. This was, after all, rather early in his, uh, in his uh, leadership. So one strained mightily to find a common heritage of shared spiritual and moral values between East and West at the time of his invitation. The fact, uh, he said in his speech, that the states of Europe belong to different social systems is a reality. He said that healthy competition between socialism and capitalism was to be welcomed, but, quote, the Western political objective of overcoming socialism has to be rejected. So the sharing of values repeatedly invoked as predicates for membership in the Council of Europe were all strikingly absent from his speech. From Gorbachev's perspective, their adapt, their, the adoption of some sort of prefixed set of values was simply not the goal. The goal was to end, quote, the outmoded stereotypes that the Soviet Union continues to be suspected of hegemonistic designs and of the intention to decouple the United States from Europe. And Gorbachev was complaining that the West wasn't listening, that there were lots of areas of collaboration, but East and West have to respect each other's differences as much as their commonalities. There was enough commonality to work together but let's not forget that these are differences. We can be part of a common European home, but we're not one family. We're inhabiting this space collaboratively, but separately. But from the point of view of Gorbachev's host, La Lumiere, now the Secretary General of the Council of Europe, Gorbachev's complex view of a common European home opened up an opportunity to improve the status and influence that the international organization she led was hoping to maintain. And so she devised the idea of creating special guest status within the parliamentary assembly for, um, for the Soviet Union. Special guest status, a wholly unnecessary concept because there was already the concept of associate member in the statute of the Council of Europe and the concept of parliamentary observer in the statute of the Council of Europe. The problem was that the legal requirements for those types of membership, associate member, uh, observer status, the Soviet Union couldn't meet. It was required to be a democratic European non-member state to have observer status. And if one wanted to be an uh, associate member, uh, you had to be deemed, quote, able and willing to fulfill the provisions of Article 3, the rule of law, fundamental human rights and freedoms which was translated into a pluralistic democracy, none of which the Soviet Union had. So I give you this new status to illustrate the modus operandi that followed thereafter, not just for the Soviet Union's uh, successor state, the Russian Federation, but for all of the uh, states of Eastern Europe that before and after the Russian Federation were admitted into the Council of Europe. The rules begin to be bent. So it is now enough if one wants to have special guest status, simply to show one, one's interest in, uh, or, or I should back up, the Parliamentary Assembly may grant special guest status to national legislative assemblies of countries which have shown their interest in and which apply and implement this series of instruments and, and uh, treaties. You don't have to show that you're successful. 
You don't have to show that you're doing a good job, just that you've shown your interest in and are starting to implement. So the rules begin to be bent. And it's this, uh, this MO uh, that begins to succeed. Uh, and so here you see on the uh, left, Catherine uh, Lalumier uh, with Boris Yeltsin. Um, and there is Lalumier's successor, Daniel Tarshish, uh, with Yevgeny Primakov, uh, the first at the start of the process uh, in, uh, in February 1992. Uh, the, the body of the Soviet Union wasn't cold in the grave before uh, the uh, Russian Federation began to inquire about the conditions for membership. Uh, and in May of that year, made a formal application to become a member. It took four years until 1996 when uh, Yevgeny Primakov signed uh, the relevant treaties to become a member. Not everybody thought the rules were just bending. Some people thought that the rules were about to be broken. And one of those people was the Deputy Secretary General of the uh, Council of Europe, uh, a man named Peter Luprecht, who resigned in protest in 1997 at Russia having been admitted a member. Uh, and this was his reasoning. And I want to show you this first uh, to consider uh, as uh, I describe the process for uh, becoming a member um, as the rules were beginning to be bent. The council's role, he said, is no longer limited to the defense of pluralist democracy, the rule of law and human rights. Its new task is to play an active role in democracy building in the post-communist countries. And to this end, important programs have been created and implemented, some of which are conducted jointly with the European Commission. With a certain irony, I've called this the policy of therapeutic admission. The idea of therapy cannot be lightly dismissed. Some of the country's concerns suffer from serious evils, and we will have to go through a long healing process. But success in therapy presupposes the consent of the patient. Unfortunately, some of the leaders of the countries involved do not appear really willing to push through the necessary reforms and to honor their commitments. So what was the process, and now how did the lawyers start to get involved? The uh, legal requirement begins with a uh, decision by the Committee of Ministers, which is the executive arm of the Council of Europe, uh, to consider inviting a new state to become a member. And by custom, the Committee of Ministers then asks the Parliamentary Assembly, the legislative body, for its input on making that decision. The Parliamentary Assembly, in turn, sought out the advice of a variety of different committees. The first committee, eminent lawyers, and they were really eminent lawyers. In this case, three of them came from the European Court of Human Rights, and three of them came from the European Commission, uh, which was, at that time, the, uh, um, the enforcement arm. There was a committee on political affairs, uh, which was uh, headed by a man named Ernst Mollmann, a uh, 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 Swiss, uh, a committee on legal affairs and human rights, which was first headed by a Dane named Ole Espersen and then a German named Rudolf Bindig. Uh, and then, as I mentioned before, a committee on relations with European non-member countries because every decision of the Parliamentary Assembly in furtherance of this goal of Eastern expansion had to go through this committee headed by a uh, Brit uh, named David Atkinson. I, after these committees come to their uh, advice, the Parliamentary Assembly is informed, the Parliamentary Assembly takes a vote, that vote is forwarded to the Committee of Ministers, and the Committee of Ministers then, assuming a positive vote, makes the invitation. 
just focus on the fact that there was a committee on political affairs, no lawyers involved, but two committees focused on the law. So that's part of what I think Abram Chase is saying when he says having the lawyers involved can affect the outcome of the decision even if law is not outcome determinative. It rarely is. And let's just compare now the work of these two committees. Over the course of four years and one suspension of their work because in the period between 1992 and 1996 uh, the, um, uh, the Russian invasion, internal invasion of Chechnya occurred and the Parliamentary Assembly suspended the entire process. Um, but over the course of four years these committees sent rapporteurs, advisors, um, uh, counselors, lawyers to study Russian law, make recommendations on how Russian law could be improved, and also how it would have to change if it was going to meet these legal requirements in the statute. Um, and just to illustrate a point that I'm making, with regard to the Chechen invasion, the Committee on Political Affairs took a very soft tone. The goal of membership is is to prevent uh, events like the Chechen conflict, which will, un will doubtlessly considerably slow down Russia's extension, but should not definitively prevent it. By integrating Russia in the Council of Europe, it will be possible to detect similar conflicts at an earlier stage and resolve them. This should also prevent a destabilization of Russia and possible civil war, which would have dangerous consequences for all of Europe. So pause to consider the implications of that statement. It presupposes that there will be similar conflicts, even as Russia is pursuing membership, which suggests that Russia is not in conformity with any of the requirements of membership, but that that shouldn't stop membership from being pursued. In fact, it should be an accelerant, because the more that uh, Russia can be brought into the Council of Europe, and the sooner it could be brought into the Council of Europe, the more uh, it can be uh, prevented from destabilizing the country, possible civil war, and dangerous consequences for all of Europe. So the policy goal is no longer that Congress, uh, that, that the Council of Europe's requirements have to be met, but that a country should aspire towards these as goals. So requirements shift to become goals from the policymaker's point of view. From the lawyer's point of view, uh, it's much more black and white. The Assembly should suspend consideration of Russian membership until it is convinced that the Russian Federation has secured respect for human rights in Chechnya, since membership is conditioned on the enjoyment by all persons within a member's jurisdiction of human rights and fundamental freedoms according to the Council of Europe statute. Now, Bindig went on to say, the policy questions aren't mine to make, but from the legal perspective, this is just clear evidence of noncompliance. So the result of four years of work with the Committee on Political Affairs repeatedly in a drumbeat fashion emphasizing the therapeutic nature, as Luprecht put it, the therapeutic nature of uh, Russian accession into the Council of Europe, that having Russia in quickly uh, is better than excluding them because more reform can happen faster. And so long as Russia is willing, that's enough. And on the other hand, the uh, legal 
uh, committees, the lawyers repeatedly stating there simply is no uh, satisfaction of these legal requirements here. Uh, and not only that, but the mentality of legal thinking is <coughs> lacking. Um, I could go on and on. There are voluminous documents. But in the end, considering all these opinions, and each very respectful of the other, the Political Affairs Committee saying we're not taking a legal perspective, and the lawyers saying we're aware that there are other policy considerations to consider, the end result by the Parliamentary Assembly when it came to vote and pass its resolution to the Committee of Ministers to approve membership was, and this has to be read very carefully, that on the basis of all sorts of assurances by uh, the Russian government that all sorts of promises would be kept. A moratorium on the death penalty, the adoption of various uh, uh, legal reforms, the creation of a professional bar, um, new civil and criminal codes and civil and criminal procedural codes and on and on and on. On the basis of these assurances and of the following considerations and commitments, the Assembly believes that Russia in the sense of Article 4 is clearly willing and will be able in the near future to fulfill the provisions of membership of the Council of Europe as set forth in Article 3. Compare that to what Article 4 actually says. So they're being quite honest in the sense of Article 4, but Article 4 doesn't say that a state must be clearly willing and will be able in the near future. Article 4 says that someone has to deem the state to be able and willing. And one interpretation of that language might be to be able and willing in the present. But I think that you can come up with an alternative reading based on this on this verb here, deemed, uh, that allows the assembly to say, in the sense of Article 4, perhaps it could be that we, the Parliamentary Assembly, and the Committee of Ministers, we, the Council of Europe, deem Russia to be able and willing, even if that might not be fully supported by facts on the ground. Another interpretation. The law is not always perfectly clear. <laughs> So now, connecting this with Abram Chase uh, and bringing it to a close. Chase made an analogy in his uh, description of the work of the lawyers uh, connected with the executive committee during the Cuban Missile Crisis to domestic courts. And he said, we recognize that the decision of courts, which are legal decisions in the purest sense, are inevitably reached on a variety of grounds of interest or policy, as well as, or quite apart from, the law. That doesn't mean, however, that the judicial opinions filling the law books are a sham. The requirements of a published opinion imposes on the court the discipline and check of the necessity to formulate its decision in terms of the set of legal rules and procedures within which the case is presented for determination. The judicial opinion cannot prove that the decision is right. but. If there can be no determinate answer, analysis and criticism can nevertheless distinguish a persuasive from a specious rationale, a responsible and serious performance from a trivial one. In this way, the requirement of justification provides an important substantive check on the legality of action and ultimately on the responsibility of the decision-making process. So in the Cuban Missile Crisis, the lawyers said to the generals, you can't invade 
They didn't, or rather, they didn't say you can't invade Cuba. You cannot conduct an airstrike on Cuba. You cannot impose a blockade on Cuba. It's against the law. What they said is the United Nations Charter prohibits states from using force, except in the case of an armed attack. We don't think that putting missiles in Cuba would constitute an armed attack. If we do say that that's what we think, we need to have an answer when the Soviet Union asks about our missiles in Turkey. Is that an armed attack? So we have to be cautious. And here are the policy options. If you want to engage in an invasion or in an airstrike, be aware that it looks like you're going to be in stark um, violation of Article 2 and Article 51 of the United Nations Charter. And maybe because of our values, that's not something that we want. But you could go to the Organization for American States and ask for collective enforcement of self-defense under their charter. And if you do that, perhaps it would exclude the option of invasion or of airstrike, since you can't go to the OAS and publicly announce that and then conduct the airstrike or the invasion. But it might allow you enough time to then impose a blockade, which we can call a quarantine. This is an option for you. And it ultimately is the option that proved to be persuasive. Not because it was the right legal answer or the wrong legal answer, but it was, it was undertaken with an eye towards the law and providing different uh, interpretations of what the law would allow with various policy repercussions. So too, so too the decision making in the Council of Europe with regard to Russia. Law served as a constraint on action. The legal requirements really mattered. They had to be reckoned with. They were there in the statute. Even if their interpretation, in some ways, uh, there could be more than one interpretation. Law served as a basis for justification or, or legitimation of action. The quality of the decision-making in the Council of Europe was going to be accepted if it was considered to be high quality. And so it suggested the third point, providing organizational structures, procedures, and forums of bringing in the Committee of Eminent Lawyers, bringing in the Committee on Legal Affairs and Human Rights, alongside with the Committee on Political Affairs, to inform the judgment. So that's the role that law plays. Uh, and I think that in conclusion, the danger is that we sometimes think of law as providing the answer. And then we have to ask ourselves whether we even want to hear what the legal answer is going to be. But the law works in a much more complicated way. And in this case, we can now judge the decision making in the Council of Europe from the very beginning and assess whether the willingness to bend some of these legal requirements or interpret them in a way that perhaps was not on its face obvious or natural in pursuit of these other policy goals and values uh, was the right approach, as was thought at the time, or the wrong approach, as Peter Luprecht, resigning in protest, thought at the time. And with that, I think uh, you typically have speakers stop uh, at this point, and I'll just say thank you. and. Uh, I'll look forward to your questions.